You're listening to a podcast from Heart. Welcome to this Heart podcast. I'm Guy Lloyd, a cardiologist in Eastbourne, and I'm joined with Professor John Chambers, who is um, a cardiologist at Guy's and St Thomas's and president of the British Heart Valve Society, and Dr Jerry McCann, a cardiologist from Leicester with a keen interest in valve disease and MRI. John, how do we risk stratify these more difficult cases, particularly those patients with asymptomatic valve disease? The focus uh, has shifted from uh, purely on the aortic valve into a much more general concern uh, with uh, a continuum between left ventricular function, aortic valve function uh, and aortic physiology and we're increasingly looking at, um, at the interactions between all of these. Uh, the other thing that we realise now, uh, which should have been obvious, uh, is that we assess the, all of these uh, at rest, whereas the patient has symptoms on exercise, and we therefore realise that in many cases our assessment is incomplete unless we also look at the effects of stress, both on left ventricular function but also on aortic valve compliance we increasingly focus not just on the aortic valve but also on uh, the aortic physiology and the effect of both of those as a unit uh, on left ventricular function. Um, The assessment of that uh, looks at physiological uh, parameters which act as endpoints for a lot of different processes. Uh, Probably the most useful of these that we have clinically at the moment uh, is the BNP level Uh, but also the exercise test. Uh, Both of these can be abnormal, uh, even sometimes in the presence of relatively moderate aortic stenosis, if there is concurrent uh, disease such as um, poor aortic compliance uh, or coronary disease uh, or an adverse physiological response uh, of the left ventricle in response to uh, increased outflow impedance. Can I chip in? Yeah. Jerry. So I think um, what John's alluding to there is that what we're seeing and recognising is that the response to pressure overload, even though the valve gradients and pressures are very, very similar, there's tremendous variation in the hypertrophic and the fibrotic response. And that can mean that a patient who has moderate or severe disease is not able to adapt to stress, and that stress for most people is exercise. Because we know that you have to, if you increase work, myocardial oxygen demand goes up, you've got to be able to increase cardiac output and increase the blood supply to the myocardium. And we're now seeing a much closer understanding of the relation between the response of left ventricular remodeling and why some patients seemingly uh, deteriorate much earlier. And there are various ways we can measure that. And the simplest, of course, is an old-fashioned exercise test. And John uh, and Paul Das have clearly shown in their work that if you have a good exercise capacity, these people have a very low risk of going on and developing events. And that's a great starting point. You can be reassured that monitoring those patients who have good functional capacity will have a very low risk of developing symptoms or adverse events within a year. 
Now, you've done a lot of interesting research looking at MRI and looking particularly at myocardial fibrosis. How do you think myocardial fibrosis relates to that uh, ventricular performance and and its relationship to aortic valve disease? Yeah, the advancement of cardiac MRI in the last 10 years uh, has really given us a a new insight into the hypertrophic response and uh, the the ability to tissue characterise. And now we're able to get an assessment of the extent of fibrosis non-invasively without uh, resorting to myocardial biopsy is really starting to increase our understanding. Um, And these techniques are going to develop. They need refined. And I'm sure everyone would agree that um, what we need to be able to do in the coming years just like we've used exercise testing, is to show that these advanced imaging modalities, be it with exercise echo, speckle tracking, techniques to assess fibrosis, we need to then show how they can impact in the patient management. And that's certainly an area that I will like to be focusing on in the future. John, do you see developments in stress echocardiography, for instance, as helping us in clinical decision-making? Yes, there is good evidence that stress echocardiography uh, risk stratifies a group in whom there is inadequate contractile reserve who we know are at high risk of cardiac events within a year. What we don't know is whether that is the self-same group who also get symptoms on conventional exercise testing and who also have high BNP levels. And what we need is research that looks at all the modalities that currently we have all at once to look at interactions between them and to work out which is more powerful than the other. Because there is the beginning of the danger of layering of investigations here as different pieces of evidence uh, evidence emerge from different uh, modalities, is there not? Yeah, I think we may find that the simple test get us 90% of the way. Mm. And it may be that in that group where we're still unsure with equivocal symptoms, with uh, equivocal changes in left ventricular function on echo, we are then obliged to go to the more sophisticated test uh, to answer the clinical question of whether that patient should have surgery or not. So it's that sort of, once we've done the research, we will need to do work that looks at all modalities we have Uh, to reach consensus about the hierarchy uh, uh, required for all these different tests. So it may well be that 90% of our um, decision-making can be done with very simple tests, with a history, of course, with exercise testing, probably with BNP. Uh, And it may be a very small number in whom it is essential to have the more complex tests. But we don't actually know that, and it may well turn out that... um, CMR could be much more accurate than than history taking, we just don't know. Yeah, John, I completely agree with you there. And what I think we may well be moving to because of the variability of the response and progression is uh, individualised medicine, so to speak, or a stratified approach. So in the study which we're going to be starting, we're going to measure BNP, which will remain blinded. Patients will have an exercise test and they'll have a stress MRI as well, which will remain blinded. And one of the things that we will look at is a stratified approach. For example, if a patient has a low BNP, their myocardium is almost certainly coping with the pressure overload, and they may need no further tests. If the BNP is going up, 
we may say do an exercise test and if they have excellent exercise capacity I think we can be reassured but it may be in the patients who are unable to exercise with a BNP which is moderately high which we then turn to the expensive modality to then say okay how much reserve is there how much fibrosis is there should we intervene and that is work really in progress and, and I think it is the way forward for medicine um, much more individuali individualised approach. We've spent many years treating hypertension with ACE inhibitors to try and reduce left ventricular hypertrophy and reduce fibrosis. Um, but we've steered away from it in aortic stenosis um, on account of concerns about increasing transaortic gradient. Should we look now to change that paradigm? Short answer, yes. Well, yes, I, I think I agree. I think, I think there's a great deal of circumstantial evidence in the clinical model that ACE inhibitors are effective. There's very direct evidence in patients with heart failure as a result of aortic stenosis that ACE inhibitors are effective. And there's a great deal in animal work showing that ACE inhibitors turn off the uh, fibrosis and adverse remodeling that pressure overload induces uh, and prolongs uh, survival. So I think uh, there's almost no data that points in the opposite direction. And, and I, I would say that patients with even mild hypoten systemic hypertension now who have aortic stenosis should start an ACE inhibitor or an AT receptor blocker. And I think it's interesting, isn't it, that we have um, perhaps neglected the importance of the peripheral vasculature in defining flow across the valve and actually optimising afterload reduction can certainly improve ventricular dynamics. Yeah, I think it's the, there's a lot of work now in both um, hypertension and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And, I think you could say aortic stenosis is the most extreme form of that condition and clearly reducing the total afterload is good and as John said the benefits of having ACE inhibition or ARB is the, the renin-angiotensin system seems to be very very important in the hypertrophic response so I would totally agree with John if the patient's hypertensive I definitely would commence an ACE inhibitor I've got no concerns about hypotension in these, this group at all. John, you've done a lot of work with the British Heart Valve Society and at Guy's and St Thomas's looking at valve clinics. The provision of valve services in the UK has historically been somewhat haphazard. How do you feel best valve services should be configured nationally? I think there's a great deal of experience now that points to the fact that specialist valve clinics are the way forward. Uh, there is evidence from work that you've done at Eastbourne that with a valve clinic in place uh, the national guidelines are followed far better than in general cardiology clinics. Uh, we have a lot of evidence anecdotally and also from work from Vienna that patients looked after in general cardiology clinics um, uh, are, are, are left until far too late such that when they come to a specialist referral clinic they already have had symptoms for sometimes up to a year and we know from the Euro Heart Survey that a half of all patients with all types of valve disease uh, have surgery with grade 3 and grade 4 symptoms so far too late uh, so everything points to suboptimal care in general cardiology clinics uh, and much better care in specialist valve clinics, and I'm sure that is the way forward. John, Jerry, thank you very much. Thank you, Guy. Thank you. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.